You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM's The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Margaret Dovegal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. And this week's topic is Americans are getting ready to say goodbye to cheap Canadian oil, and here's what the Trans Mountain expansion has to do with it. Plus, BC pulls back from its controversial amendments to the Land Act. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us this morning. As always, good morning, Mankir, and great to be here. Now, the Trans Mountain Expansion Project is 97% complete, and it will soon be directing more Canadian oil to Asian markets. What has been the response south of the border? Yeah, the Trans Mountain Expansion, sometimes called TMX, has been underway for over a decade, going through some pretty complex steps in, first of all, regulatory approvals, there was some time in court, and frequent challenges from opposition groups that have uh, lengthened the timeline for construction. And while a lot has changed in the world at large since it was first brought forward at the time by Kinder Morgan, its former owner, uh, the fundamentals underlying the project are proving out. And essentially what it does is it triples capacity uh, in that pipeline. It's an additional 590,000 barrels a day of Canadian oil. And the United States in all of these years um, has gotten quite used to getting a lot of oil from us at a major discount. That's, of course, pretty easily managed when your seller only has one buyer, you, uh, for the most part. Uh, we do, we've always sold a little bit to, to other countries, but uh, that's been more incidental. Um, a fifth of our overall crude oil production for years has gone to the U.S. and Western Canadian Select, WCS. Um, it's the type of oil that, uh, that we sell. Uh, it's been sold at a substantial discount, uh, 18 to 20 U.S. dollars a barrel, I think I saw. And a lack of pipeline capacity has been one of the factors behind that. And according to an analyst with the Wall Street Journal, uh, Jinju Lee, he said, quote, uh, the windfall from Canada's glut will be missed, but it shouldn't be a shock to the system. So they're not predicting you know, huge price spikes necessarily, but um, it certainly affects the profitability of American uh, refiners and uh, those who sell oil to their markets. Um, and uh, because we've been selling so much of it to them, it's been certainly to their advantage. Uh, this new capacity uh, with pipeline will be and slowly, so it shouldn't massively shock the system from the U.S. perspective. But I think the much more important angle here uh, are the benefits to Canada. And for years, critics have pointed to the costs of constructing uh, transmountain expansion, um, direct profit, uh, profitability of the project, as somehow indicative of whether the expansion itself makes economic sense. But from our perspective, that's uh, never been the main value of it uh, as it relates to the broader economy. Fetching a higher price both on U.S. markets and by opening up much more export to Asia is a really big deal for us as an energy producer. And we can and we will expect to see higher returns. In fact, that's what uh, the, uh, the U.S. analysts uh, are, are expecting because the price is going to go up of, of our product. And those are dollars um, that then you know, can be paid by buyers who want our product. They flow into industry investment here in Canada, hopefully. And this in the governments, both provincial and federal, can manage to create competitive conditions for that investment. We can continue to see the immense benefits of creating and maintaining high-paying jobs in Canadian energy. And that's why that investment was initially made. It's why the federal government bought it as a project in, in the national interest when it proved a little bit difficult for the private sector to advance it. And it's incredible regulatory chaos, I, I would characterize it as having been. And I think the essential message here is that we all win when our most economically productive industries succeed. They are the basis of national prosperity in Canada. They enable a high quality of life. And I'm also excited by possibilities that 
uh, are now opening up uh, that Indigenous communities themselves may be direct uh, beneficiaries of the, the project uh, beyond uh, you know, being involved in many cases in the upstream energy production in Canada. Um, you know, lots remains to be seen on how exactly that pans out, but I wouldn't be surprised if an Indigenous consortium was the one to actually purchase a project from the federal government after it went operational. And what's next for Canada as an energy producer? I would say that our future is bright in many, many ways. We are already a global leader in applying sustainability and environmental performance technologies to how we produce all kinds of things, uh, energy products, certainly, uh, from oil and gas to biomass and renewables. Um, you know, looking at uh, oil in particular, uh, there's a group called the Pathways Alliance. It represents oil, and, oil sands majors, uh, largest firms uh, producing oil products from the, the oil sand in Canada. And they're currently advancing work to deploy carbon capture, utilization, and storage, CCUS, at scale. And that's pretty significant um, because that technology captures emissions in a variety of ways. There's many forms that it can be used in. Uh, one form called direct air capture, where you're you basically large turbines that are pulling in lots of air fans, I guess you could call them. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're cleaning the carbon out of the air. Uh, that's you know, a very simple explanation, but certainly one of them. Uh, there's others that can be deployed at the point source of emissions, uh, you know, right where you're, you're burning uh, things in order to create heat and to, to power your industrial process. Uh, there's emissions that come with that. Uh, so capturing those is, is another form of, of deploying this. Uh, but the end result, um, and as we see these technologies get deployed, I, I think we'll notice that uh, others in the world are doing this too, but Canada will certainly have an advantage in moving quickly, um, that the emissions intensity for Canadian oil will drop. Uh, and that's an opportunity to ensure that the sector can stay ahead of projected demand uh, changes, uh, what kind of oil people want uh, in the uh, mid to long term, uh, and also regulatory pressures here at home. And right here in BC, we also have some major advantages on this file. Uh, during the peak of transmountain construction and before, uh, it may have been easy for your average observer to assume that our main contribution as a province to this whole energy matter was just being an easy way to access tidewater. And don't get me wrong, that remains the case. It's actually quite valuable that uh, we have so much coastline and an ability to sell products to uh, economies that want them. Um, but it is also important to note that British Columbia is a producer of energy, and natural gas production in the Northeast is one of our most valuable resources. A lot of uh, infrastructure build-out currently being advanced um, will support domestic demand for natural gas and also international export in the form of liquefied natural gas, LNG. And there was a poll recently released by the Clean Energy uh, Canada group. Uh, they say that 62% of British Columbians believe that natural gas has an important or very important role to play in BC's energy strategy. So that's uh, certainly good to see that the local, regional, national benefits uh, of natural gas are understood and uh, are being better understood across the board. In other news, yesterday the provincial government announced that it was pulling proposed amendments to the Land Act. Would you explain a bit, the first bit, about what those amendments entail? Yeah, a few weeks ago the BC government signaled that it wanted to make some consequential changes to the Land Act and uh, that essentially governs how public land is used and distributed and allocated and how decisions are made about it in our province. And one of the main drivers of this change um, was desire to be compliant with BC's legislation from 2019 to adopt principles from the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples uh, uh, under it. And that's a UN document that was developed uh, internationally, but uh, Canadian Indigenous leaders actually had a big role to play. 
And that legislation was uh, brought to North America for the first time uh, by the BC legislature in 2019. And that was actually the reason why ResourceWorks started our own event on this topic, which we now call the Indigenous Partnership Success Showcase, going into its fifth year this June. And uh, the idea with uh, these amendments to the Land Act, um, you know, there's been changes across the board in how the provincial government handles the topic of reconciliation. But in this case, it uh, was aimed at facilitating greater shared decision-making and potentially sign-off by Indigenous communities on land use. Um, they didn't go quite as planned. And uh, they attributed uh, the decision to withdraw to what they called dog whistle politics. And I think that's essentially the crux of the question. Uh, I think reconciliation is a complex process. Um, you know, is, is it about nominal inclusion, which, you know, makes it pretty uncontroversial? Or is it about deep, substantive change to how we work as a government, as a society, as an economy? And I think it's actually quite important uh, to look at uh, decisions about land as requiring some coordination, um, you know, requiring uh, some, some deep, meaningful uh, insight and consultation, um, and when we're changing how we do that, uh, it's not just a matter of informing the public. Uh, look, I believe in the need for reconciliation. There's fundamental issues about fairness and inclusion that need to be addressed through this process. A very important part um, of, of people who are living in this country have been left behind uh, through decades and you know over 100 years of uh, racist and discriminatory policies, uh, and uh, society hasn't been inclusive economies have not been inclusive. That is changing, and it has to keep changing. But um, I think as we engage in this process, a mistake is assuming that the public, first of all, understands, and second of all, supports something that does change the way that land use is governed. And I think that's the goal of this aspect of reconciliation policy. It's not an incidental outcome. Uh, and getting to buy-in, I think, is a prerequisite of making policy changes to support reconciliation ultimately sustainable and long-lasting. And where does this leave the BC NDP? Well, they are overall changing a lot of stuff right now. Many, many changes. Uh, and, you know, coming up to the end of their second term in government in an election year, with pretty strong odds at this point to form government again, it comes as no surprise to see them pursuing a fairly ambitious agenda. And some governments who have far greater uncertainty about their political strengths would treat an election year as an opportunity to uh, get through work that they may expect would get rolled back. Um, that's, I don't think, the case for them right now. Um, so they're going hard. Uh, and, you know, to uh, respond to the needs of their voter base, that's probably the right move. Um, you know, on the housing front, there's been a lot of changes on land policy there as well. Uh, I've noticed housing advocates across the country as being kind of envious of uh, what BC is doing because uh, the changes that the BC NDP is advancing to zoning and municipal land use um, you know, they're, they're pretty big. They're um, making some municipal leaders quite unhappy uh, because it takes uh, away from a lot of local community planning and consultation. But uh, in the perspective of housing advocates, uh, these changes will certainly address some of the biggest challenges to housing affordability, which is just getting things built uh, at a scale and at a pace that can support a growing population. Uh, ultimately, you know, being bold doesn't come free. Uh, you know, if it did, no one would do it. Uh, or everyone would do it, and there would be nothing to do that would be bold, right? Um, so managing uh, outcry from people that are affected by bold action is just an essential responsibility of government. Um, so, you know, as it comes back to the Land Act, uh, Nathan Cullen, uh, the Minister of Water, Land, and Resource Stewardship, uh, said the other day that, quote, we need, to, uh, we need a little bit more time to help make it work and bring people in. So it seems pretty clear to me that the matter is not closed. 
far from it, but I expect we won't see much about it until after the election. Mm-hmm. Margareta, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. You too, Karen.